Okay, good. Well, let's all be seated. So we all find a seat and we'll proceed with the class. Yeah. Okay, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we come before you this morning just uh, to learn about history of the church, the history of how the gospel has been ministered and what else has happened as, as a result of it being ministered. We just pray you would just make us uh, knowledgeable about the times, that we know where people are coming from, that we can respond uh, with sane, good answers to people about the hope that is in us and that we can be instrumental in restoring the gospel to the, to the church in our time here. So we just pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, um, I'm going to be giving a talk this morning on evangelicalism, and it's a sequel to the one I gave back in October. Uh, generally, the evangelicalism that arose in the 1940s is sometimes called neo-evangelicalism to distinguish it from the evangelicalism of previous time in America. So I will probably use the words interchangeably. I think when people say evangelicalism, they mean the current neo-evangelicalism. So I'll be using, maybe using both terms, uh, not even <coughs> consciously, but as I was preparing for this talk, it occurred to me that this could be a message in three segments or three different uh, classes. I think we, we need to cover neo-evangelicalism generally, the history of it in our time. We also need to devote some time to Fuller Theological Seminary. The more I learn about Fuller, the more I realize what a unique position it has played in evangelical history, and it uh, isn't the most illustrious history either. <laughs> and we also need to have a, um, a section dealing with modern missions. You know, what has happened to modern missions in our time? And I, I'll be, if we have time, I'll be touching on it later on in our talk. But how many of you, if I say the word Lausanne, how many of you know what that means when it comes to Christian missions? Okay, good. It's, it's fairly well known. Um, and as I, uh, when I gave my uh, uh, message in October, I sort of asked myself afterwards, well, did I sound very negative? Did I, did I come across that I had a very negative attitude toward evangelicalism? Um, I, might have, I might have been partially, sounded somewhat negative. I, my memories of evangelicalism are actually quite pleasant. I really enjoyed those years when I was in the evangelical world. This was on campus, and uh, I was in my early 20s and with a good group of fellow Christians, and we had pretty good times. We grew together, we fellowshiped together, prayed together, uh, studied the Word together, and um, it was a very profitable time, and I don't have many regrets about it at all. But, <clears throat> Um, but I will now um, refer to a uh, historical paper or a scholarly paper done by an evangelical historian or scholar. There are a number of evangelical scholars in the world, in, mainly in America, who have studied evangelicalism and American church in general over the past several hundred years. And they've written some very interesting books. And I'm going to uh, just be referring to a paper that was um, taken from a collection of scholarly papers. The title of this is Taking the Measure of the Evangelical Resurgence, 1942 to 1992. Uh, this appeared in Christianity today under the title, Can Evangelicalism Survive Its Success? It was published in 1992. And I, I assume here that the, the figure, 19, or the year 1942 is referred to as a year that evangelicalism, the neo-evangelicalism was inaugurated. That was a year when the National Association of Evangelicals was founded. And this, uh, 
And okay, 50 years after something starts, everybody's you know, doing some soul searching, taking stock of where they are, what they'd like to see in the future, wondering about the past. And this, this is what um, this scholar says. His name is Nathan Hatch. He was born in 1946, and so therefore he, he was growing up in, in the 50s and must have gone out of high school in the early 60s. He grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, and he is reminiscing about what was not there in the 50s. And I'm just going to read the things he says. He, okay, his town had a lot of Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian churches. They were all, almost every street corner had a church in, in his town. He's, how, then he says, Columbia had no Christian radio. Nothing on the airways compare, comparable to Amy Grant, Sandy Petty, or Lionel Harris. He said that you could tune into church services Sunday mornings on the radio, but there was no Jim Dobson, Charles Swindoll, or John MacArthur offering insight for daily living. There was nothing like the string of over 1,000 Christian radio stations that blanket the country. No one could look to television for daily Christian instruction and inspiration. Churches had midweek prayer services, prayer meetings, but small group fellowships or care groups were unknown, as were a Bible study fellowship and walk through the Bible. Churches spoke of revival, but there, was, there were no means of bringing laity into the evangelism uh, process, evangelism ministry. Um, there was nothing like the four spiritual laws. There was no uh, evangelism explosion. Churches had not yet developed specialized ministries to singles, single parents, and to the divorced. Church growth seminars had not come on the scene yet. At the local high schools, there was no young life. At the University of South Carolina, there was no intervarsity fellow, Christian fellowship, no campus crusade, no navigators, no fellowship of Christian athletes. Uh, college students had nothing at their disposal for apologetics, such as the works of C.S. Lewis, Francis Schaeffer, or Josh McDowell. Um, the young people who went, to, went on to um, train for pastoral ministry went to regional denominational semina- seminaries. They did not go to uh, Fuller, Gordon Conwell, or Trinity, which were yet to emerge. There was a Southern Baptist bookstore in town that sold Bibles and Sunday school material, but Christian publishers like Zondervan, Word, and Multnomah had not yet flooded the market with an array of, Christian, of books for Christian living, from child-rearing to Christian fiction, from financial planning to biographies of Christian celebrities. And fundamentalists could boast no phenomenal bestsellers like Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth or Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness. There were no Christian grade schools or high schools. There were no Christian counseling centers, no Christianity Today leadership or decision publications. There were no appeals to relieve third world hunger from World Vision or Samaritan's Purse or Bread for the Hungry. You could not join hands with others in uh, Habitat for Humanity or Prison Fellowship. None of my high school friends had the opportunity to serve overseas in summer missions projects. Can you imagine a world like that? (laughs) That was what the world was like America, at least, was like in the 50s. <laughs> all the things we take for granted weren't there. So all these things that you know, came on the scene later are due to neo-evangelicalism, due to the neo-evangelicalism that emerged in the 40s and populated the Christian landscape with all these many different ministries, organizations, persons, um, outreaches. And this, again, as people have looked at this phenomenon of neo-evangelicalism, uh, they have sort of been surprised because according to what everybody was predicting, this type of religion was supposed to disappear. You know, this sort of religion, this Bible-believing, Pentecostal or fundamentalist uh, type religion that believed in a literal you know, gospel, believed in the Bible, 
believed it to be true, that, thing, that sort of thing was expected to disappear. But lo and behold, it didn't. We, uh, neo-evangelicalism arose, and reputedly one out of every three persons in America claims to be born again. I don't believe that to be factually true, but surveys, surveys have shown that. That's an answer that people give. You know, when people ask, you know, do you consider yourself born again? They almost, if they're churchgoers, they almost feel obligated to say yes. You know, in, in um, some, when you're being asked these spiritual type questions, you have to sort of give not the real answer, but the right answer, the answer that they're looking for, supposedly. And so we have one-third of American, American public claiming to be born again. Um, as we have gone out evangelizing in the public, I don't find that one out of three people there are born again. It's very plainly obvious. It might be, I'm guessing, one out of ten, or maybe one out of ten people that we talked to turns out to be a born-again believer. I was talking about this with some people here in, on the evangelism team, and uh, that maybe 10% are, one out of 10 is a born-again person. Mark Anderson said that my estimate was way too high, and well, <laughs> maybe it, it could be, but it's somewhere down there. So, but anyway, that is a way, that is a scene, the, the Christian, the church world today, this evangelical culture, this evangelical establishment. Okay, I'm going to uh, go back to my college days as a Christian, as a young Christian, and I, I, I wound up going to a church that was near campus, near my dormitory. It was a church in a mainline denomination. It was Presbyterian. Um, it had a large evangelical contingent. A lot of people there were, were Christians, true Christians, who uh, had fellowship together. They prayed together, studied the word together. They counseled each other. There was a real a semblance of church life there that I really appreciated. Even though these people were sort of housed in a mainline denomination. And I sort of have wondered about that, but you know, it is true that in these mainline churches at the congregational level, you will find a lot of evangelicals, a lot of true Christians who are uh, maybe have trouble with the system, but maybe they're, uh, they're there because their family, they were raised there. It was a family church for the past hundred years or so. But also, as I just looked at, as I reminisce about those days, uh, a, lot, a lot of students, you know, students came to campus. Young, some, some young people came to the cities to work. They found themselves in that neighborhood. They visited the church. They found it had a nice, a good youth group, good people there. So they just came to it. It didn't matter to them that it was Presbyterian or what it was. When I was going there, I never. I, it was a Presbyterian church. I never considered myself Presbyterian. See, these denominational labels really meant nothing to us. And if a church was a good church, it was cozy, comfortable. We enjoyed it. We would go to it regardless. And the. And. Those of us who were, you know, the, the lay people, I don't like that word necessarily, but those of us who were not in the leadership of the church barely knew there was a hierarchy above us. We had our, a church life together. We, we paid very little attention to the hierarchy. We very, very seldom heard from them. It was as if they weren't there. So we were you know, at the grassroots level. We were, uh, we just didn't, weren't barely aware we were in a, in a Presbyterian church. Also, one of the things I wanted to say about okay, my campus days was I also was a member of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I occasionally went to Campus Crusade for their meetings. And again, these were um, evangelical student groups. There were several on campus. And one of the, one of the features of evangelicalism is that a lot of its work is done in parachurches. Uh, there were parachurches, a few of them in America or in the world, prior to the advent of evangelicalism, but the evangelicals created thousands of parachurch groups, parachurch ministries. 
Now, uh, what I mean by parachurch is that it's an organization that sort of exists alongside the church. Para is the Greek prefix for alongside, next to. And a lot of, of many evangelicals established these ministries to carry on the work of the church. So a lot of, uh, a lot of the ministry of the church is done by parachurch groups. Now, some people are critical of that because they say that the, the people who believe in the, the significance of the local church, that the local church needs to have oversight over all, all, its, all of its ministries. They should not be outsourcing their ministries to these nationwide large church um, organizations that have, like, which are like corporations. They have a corporate headquarters, and a lot of the decisions are made at the corporate level that are, you know, have to be abided by, um, you know, at the local level. And again, like I said, um, many Christians believe that the, all the, that the ministry of the church needs to be under the oversight of the local church and not, you know, not under the, you know, under a, not done in a corporation, so to speak. Okay, there's one other thing I noticed in my student days, and was that neo-evangelicalism was able to assimilate people from other churches. When students and young people, students came to college, or younger people left home and went to work in the big city, they often joined, found themselves in evangelical groups because they were there. Evangelicalism was you know, on the move, it was dynamic. And the student groups, the youth groups were all attracted a lot of people who were not from an evangelical background. Some of them became Christians, you know, under the influence of these groups. Others had been raised fundamentalist, Pentecostal, or maybe some ethnic church. And when they came, you know, left home, came to the big city or came to campus, they could not find very readily a student ministry, student group that was from their denomination. So they were, they joined an evangelical group. And you know, uh, made a lot of friends there. Maybe they had friends they met, invited them to their, to the, you know, InterVarsity or some group like that. And so um, evangelicalism did assimilate a lot of people from other backgrounds. And as I further observed, the, um, a lot of the ministry of the, of the parachurches is youth group, youth ministries. And when I was, you know, on campus, you know, we, we would have our, our group would usually often have like a weekly meeting. We'd get together for some worship, some Bible study. Maybe we had a guest speaker. Uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship was, you know, brought in speakers who would talk about various social issues, you know, uh, racial relations, um, pollution and things like that were talked about in those days. And so we had... You know, we could get together, have a good time with our fellow Christians, maybe go out for pizza afterwards. And uh, we had a very, very cozy church life. If, uh, we call it, if we can call it church life, it wasn't exactly church, but it, for all practical purposes, that became church for us. We, did, we had less interest in going to church on Sunday mornings because we found everything we wanted in our youth group. Except, of course, they, they didn't do baptisms, they didn't observe the Lord's Supper in the youth group. You know? <laughs> and as I think of where some, of the, some people like that have gone to, and I think of the churches that youth, people, youth, young people have established, the type of churches they have wanted to you know, be in, I'm beginning to think that some churches, uh, like I'm picking on the emergent church, that these churches are overgrown youth groups. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. On the on the handout that you have, I listed the goals of new evangelicalism. I'm not going to say much about it because I, I spoke about that last time. I uh, I'm, I will be talking about the one at the bottom about saving the world, saving Western world from ruin. Uh, event uh, later on here. Um, Okay, we looked at Nathan Hatch's uh, paper. Now, Joel Carpenter is another um, evangelical scholar. And he, 
you know, has made his observations, which um, I'm going to call your attention to some of them. He uh, wrote in his in his paper that was called the was a paper called Youth for Christ and the New Evangelicals, which uh, I forget exactly what year that came out, and it's been out for a while. Uh, in the 1930s, the fundamentalists had uh, they had earlier they had. Uh, undergone a few setbacks. They were not liked by the media. The world sort of thought they were very uh, backward and unenlightened. However, they um, did, they learned to, they did minister the gospel. They did evangelism and, and outreach. They learned how to use the tools like uh, radio, especially radio was a fairly new thing in the 30s. They learned to use journalism and other, other means of communicating the gospel, and they had some success. And once they began to have a certain level of success, they began to think of a revival. Maybe we're going to have a revival. We had this kind of response. Are we going to have a revival? And they, their focus shifted to, a, to revival. They wanted to have revival. The purpose of revival was for seeking national renewal. They wanted to renew America, return America back to its, to its Christian roots, the, or supposed perceived Christian roots. And so the, there was a change among the fundamentalists. They began to take, uh, take a greater interest in the world, to go into the world, to uh, cooperate with other fundamentalist groups or other Christian groups that they would normally not associate with. And I found it interesting, the, um, the second quotation at the bottom, which has the three bullet points, I, I lifted this out of, a, uh, out of the article. The, um, the article itself does not have the bullet points, but I put them in just to highlight something that I thought was very interesting. The, um, they went from alienation to engagement, from sectarianism to cooperation, and then they went from the pose of a prophetic faithful remnant to that of the nation's evangelists and chaplains. And I just thought it kind of humorous to think of a prophet wanting to change his job and become a chaplain. I just thought it was kind of humorous. And, but they, they uh, sort of wanted to be, take custody over the nation's uh, spiritual heritage. They want to become spiritual custodians for the country rather than maintaining a separatist, you know, we're going to be separate from the world. Uh, they wanted to take on the role of becoming like the custodians of, of the gospel for the American public. Uh, fundamentalists who are, you know, the dispensationalists, they, all, they believe that in, in the church age, the world was going to grow hostile to the gospel. The gospel would be heard by some. There would be believers, but they would be a small number. The church and, and the church, the church, the official church would apostatize. They did not have an optimistic outlook for the gospel in the um, in the world. But but again, that sort of that sort of alternated with the possibility that maybe we can change the world after all. We can change America. There was some. You know, conflict of thought here, and I don't know if they realize it or not, but there was sort of they sort of went back and forth between these two these two you know um, ends of the you know the spectrum. Now, uh, I'd like to talk about um, uh, Harold O'Kenge, and we're going to skip the section on Harriet, Henry and Amir's and Bill Bright for a while, and go to the, you can turn the page. And uh, we're going to talk about Harold, I think his the name is pronounced Okenge. He was a very influential new evangelical. He was one of, one of the founders. Um, he pastored a church in Boston. He was president of Fuller for a while. Uh, like I said, he was very influential. He, uh, he again, was concerned about revival. He addressed the... National Association of Evangelicals Convention one year, I believe in 40, probably in 42. But he said that, and this was during World War II, and he said that World War II had brought all humanity to a crossroads. You know, the, World War II had really, um, was a very, well, distressing thing. People wondered, would Western civilization survive? 
or would we come under totalitarian domination? That was a real fear. They were questioning the survival of, of our world, our Western civilization. And he said uh, to, at this convention that there's two ways we can go. On one path was the rescue of Western civilization by a revival of evangelical Christianity. So he was looking toward evangelical Christianity as the means to, revive, to rescue Western civilization. Then he said, uh, well, on the other path, the other, on the other hand, we could descend into the dark ages of heathendom. So that was what, what, well, you know, what lay ahead of us, you know, two extremes, one of two extremes. He also, uh, at a convocation at Fuller, uh, probably, at, I mean, I'd have been the first one they had when they opened in 1947. He um, gave a talk that is called The Challenge to the Christian Culture of the West. Um, and it's... Uh, it's one where he lays on the challenge that they have as a seminary. What we are going to do as a seminary, we are going to raise up men of God who can minister the gospel. Uh, we're going to train them well. They're going to be thoroughly uh, trained in the gospel, committed to the gospel, and we are going to undo the trend of the times. He also was very knowledgeable about what had happened in Germany. He... Um, thought that what happened in Germany was pretty much a disaster with the uh, uh, with liberal theology coming in, rationalism, Hegelianism, and that, and that was signaled for him or meant the doom of Germany for all practical purposes. And he uh, wanted to change that trend. He wanted to uh, send well-trained gospel ministers out into the world, into America and into the world, uh, he gave a very impassioned appeal you know, to, the, you know, to the audience, to the seminary, to really do the job. We, we have this window of opportunity you know, to save the world, and you know, let's be about the business of you know, cha uh, changing the course of human history. Okay, um, anyway, uh, so much for that one. Now, let's... Let's talk about two other people, Henrietta Mears and Bill Bright. Henrietta Mears was... Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Are we going to talk about McGavern later? If we have time, we're going to talk about McGavern. Okay, when that gets to that, I have some, a lot of information. Okay. Well, I studied under one of his disciples. Oh, really? Really. Okay, well, okay so... We'll, we'll make sure we give a few minutes. Okay, to, but I, I don't want to interrupt. So let's okay. back to something you got on your outline. Okay. Henrietta Mears was a very remarkable lady. She was born in North Dakota in 1890. She's a graduate of the University of Minnesota. She was a school teacher, public school teacher, for many years. And then she went out to California and became the director of Christian education at Hollywood Presbyterian Church. And she was a teacher. She was, she was an organizer. And she... Uh, Expanded the Sunday school from about 400 students to about four to 5,000. She was a good organizer. She uh, trained teachers. She, uh, she was a motivator of young people. She uh, established a conference center in the mountains somewhere in California. And she held conferences for young people. And certain people like Billy Graham, who was young at the time, and Bill Bright were, you know, were present, and, and a lot of other future leaders of new evangelicalism. Um, her, you know, her motivation to young people was that, you know, let's go out there and win the world for Christ. She was a motivator, an encourager, um, was able to, you know, motivate, encourage young people um, to win the world for Christ. Well, what does that mean, to win the world for Christ? Um, it's very, that's kind of, that's a very, first of all, a very unclear statement. And if people are motivated to do that, what are they going to wind up doing? Uh, we'll, and we'll maybe get, mention something about that later on. Uh, Bill Bright was a founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, which he founded, uh, I think, in the early 50s. He and his wife had actually lived with uh, Henrietta Mears for about 11 years, and so 
she really taught and you know tutored both of them you know quite thoroughly and and um, Bill Bright also uh, sort of absorbed this you know this this mentality that we're going to minister the gospel and we're going to change the world we're going to win the world for Christ uh, Bill Bright uh, he's one of us come help change the world I uh, put the title of his book there on there I. I uh, misspelled a word that my spell check did not catch. I, uh, I wrote, come help change the word. I think that might have happened too and as a result. <laughs> so you can just correct that, mis that misspelling. Uh, okay. What else did I want to say here? I've got all these notes here. And also, uh, you know, like I said, Billy Graham was under the influence of Henry of Henrietta Mears and a lot of other people of his generation, a lot of other leaders of evangelicalism in his generation were, um, were under her influence. And there was actually, in California at this time, there was sort of like a, this evangelical think tank that you know, assembled. There was uh, Ms. Mears and then Billy Graham, Bill Bright, and a lot of other people who, we, who are not as well known, who became leaders, pastors, uh, in evangelicalism. And it's, um, again, uh, they, I'm just curious as to what exactly was their understanding of the gospel? What was their understanding of the mission of the church? What was the church supposed to do? It is very easy to go from, you know, the determination and the intention we are going to bring the gospel into the world we're going to, you know, establish churches, disciple people. We're going to raise up the church, raise up a church. They'll be ready for, you know, for Jesus when he returns. That will, and will be delivered from the coming wrath. And it's easy to go from that to a world changing. We're going to alleviate the conditions of the world. It's remarkably easy. And I think a lot of young Christians have sort of come into this, this understanding of Christian service uh, without even knowing it. And, and it's something that, you know, we need to distinguish. We need to um, really be committed to the gospel. And I think one thing that I would like to see done is uh, that the focus of Christians could, could go back to the gospel, the ministry of the gospel, the raising up of the church, the establishing of, of sound churches throughout the world. And uh, because this, this is, uh, this world is not our home, you know, this world isn't, this age isn't going to be, last that much longer. We need to just have, a, have an eternal focus on, on things. Okay, now, um, in the time remaining, we've got plenty of time left. Um, I'd like to say a few, few things about Fuller Seminary, uh, which, I, okay, um, yeah, I've got. On my... Uh, Notes, my, my uh, uh, notes, enlarged notes, I put the name Rick Warren under Fuller Seminary too, but I don't think we need to say anything about him at the moment. But he is one of the personalities that has come out of Fuller. And it's, um, as I was looking at different websites recently this past week in preparation, I was looking at all the different things that have come out of Fuller. It's just sort of astounding, mind-boggling all the things that have come out of Fuller, all the people who have been there, who have either studied there or been on faculty or have somehow been in, you know, in cooperation with Fuller, it is kind of um, mind-boggling and quite distressing. And I didn't, you know, when I have looked at websites, these discerner websites, there's this, this group of people that are known as discerners who put out these websites where they're really taking a look at what's going on in the evangelical church or the apostolic prophetic groups or in the church world. They, they, uh, come, um, they put all these reports out there. All, they've done all this research, put out these reports. And I say to my, I've said to myself a long time, well, it can't be that bad. You know, I know these groups. I know about these groups. They're not that, they don't look, they're not that bad. Um, there's, uh, they got some errors, some problems, of course, and some, they've got some heretics and some false prophets and all that, but it isn't as bad as they say. Well, I'm beginning to have to wonder about that statement. They, <laughs> they might be as bad as they say. I know there are, 
there are some people who are really have a real axe to grind against other ministries, and some of them, um, their, their research isn't that good. They just make accusations. But there are a lot of them that do very thorough research. They document their, you know, their findings. They present a very good case. So when it comes to the, the Cerner websites, they are not, all, they're not e all equally good. Just have to you know, let you know. But there are some very good ones out there. Now, um, what I want to say about Fuller here, what else I want to say about Fuller is... Um, Okay, uh, C. Peter Wagner and John Wimber, who are in the apostolic prophetic movement, were on staff or on faculty at Fuller. They, they taught a course called, I think it was Church Growth Through Signs and Wonders. They were, um, <laughs> they were, again, a lot of these evangelical churches and maybe other churches as well, apostolic prophetic, what they want is church growth. The leaders are desirous of church growth. It doesn't matter so much, you know, how they get the people in the church, but they want them in, and they find these various techniques. You know, if you go into a, let's say you're on the mission field, you go into a town in India somewhere, and there's 500 people in the village, and maybe 25 of them become believers, you, you're really, you know, you're not able to control the number of people who are going to come into the church. Uh, you, and you should not be you're trying to use church growth methods to persuade these Hindus and Muslims to come into your church. You preach the gospel to them, and some will respond, some will not. Those who respond are the church. There might be five, there might be 50, but it's, uh, you're not going to be able to control the size of the church. Um, in America, for some reason, a lot of people, a lot of, especially pastors who sort of desire their own glory, pursuing their own glory, um, theology of glory and not the theology of the cross is what they're pursuing they uh, want to influence a lot of people, they want to include everybody, I think one of the desires of evangelicalism became that we've got to include everybody in the church the, inc the inclusion, we've got to include everyone so we've got to make it possible for everybody to come to church and feel at home and stay there Okay, um, that is what was done in earlier church history, uh, which had very detrimental results for the church. The, uh, when everybody was expected to be part of the church, everyone was expected to be a Christian. That was not a good uh, thing for, for the history of the church or for Christianity. So anyway, um, these two leaders in the apostolic prophetic were associated with Fuller for a while, uh, C. Peter Wagner, who, well, he died a couple of years ago. He was one of the uh, supreme apostles here in North America. He was, he was an apostle, maybe the best, no, maybe the most, um, I don't know, uh, the most very, he was a very prominent apostle in the apostolic prophetic movement. Um, and anyway, he's, uh, he was involved in a lot of things. Um, wrote a lot of books, made a lot of very boastful claims, uh, issued a lot of false teaching. And so he also was at Fuller. Um, Fuller reputedly had, a, of their student body, about roughly 40% were uh, charismatics or Pentecostals or apostolic prophetic. They, were very, they had a very large charismatic contingent. Okay, um, there were two men who were on faculty, two men who I don't know much about, Edmund Gibbs and Ryan Bolger. They were leaders of the Emergent Church. They published books, and they were among the leaders. I don't know that much about them, but again, they came out of Fuller. Uh, so, so anyway, um, yeah, Bob. If, if you want to talk about McGavern right now, this would be... Is that a good time? Yeah, that's what a I good time, yes. Yeah, All right. Um, but in God's providence, I got some new software and was able to recover the work that I did when I was in seminary, which I used to always use word perfect. Now I can get it open and I can do what I want with it. And I found papers. 
You know, to give some context to this, one of my good friends at Bible college was a, a brother by the name of Bill Bjorker, who actually had done some good work in Israel later, but he ended up out at Fuller studying directly under C. Peter Wagner as his teacher and advisor. And Bill had been convinced by Wagner. And Bill would send me, this was in the early 90s when I went to Bethel Seminary before, so it was all snail mail. So I had piles of papers that he wrote or papers written by the intelligentsia out at Fuller, Paul A. Bear, people like that. Now, my missions teacher at Bethel Sem was a personal disciple of McGavern and required that I study McGavern's material, which I did. And I found my paper that I wrote about McGavern. And in that paper, it was just a few weeks ago, I was able to open it. I found the key to the whole thing. And that was the one thing I disagreed with McGavern about. And here's his axiom. And this is what made C. Peter Wagner function and Rick Warren and this whole movement, in my opinion. Okay. Okay. And this came directly from McGavern. And McGavern did his work around World War I. McGavern's axiom is that people do not become Christian for theological reasons, but for sociological reasons. Hmm. And that colored everything. So he wasn't about denying anything. See, rationalism denied. There's no miracles. There's no resurrection. We can't expect people to believe in an inerrant Bible. And so evangelicalism wanted to fight the rationalists. But McGavern wasn't a rationalist. He was a pragmatist. Okay, so once you make that leap, in my opinion, that you become a Christian for sociological reasons, then the next step is church growth. And you study sociology rather than theology. So if you want people to be Christian, you don't study theology, you study sociology. Well, McGavern compiled all of this data from the mission field, came to Fuller, and started publishing. Okay, so my teacher was under McGavern. Well, C. Peter Wagner came and had take, took McGavern's theory of the sociological reasons and studied people movements in South America. And he determined that the fastest growing, quote, evangelical groups were the ones with the apostles and prophets. Okay? Mm. And the, what would get them out of Rome was the Apostles of Prophets movement with signs and wonders, okay? Because Rome had their hierarchy and their pope and their bishops and, and all that. Well, here comes all these people saying, you don't need the pope. We can have our own apostles and prophets. And that was very exciting. And so hmm. C. Peter Wagner, and then after that, Wimber, took that whole thing And they're simply applying the belief system of McGavern that what matters is sociology. And then on the wings of that, excuse me for jumping in here, but I'm a frustrated preacher who's been sick for a while. Um, It's just when I've been sitting here for weeks thinking, how did this happen to me? In the sense that how did I meet these people? How did I study under these people? How did I personally meet and discuss this with uh, Rick Warren? And how was it I was out there two months before their presidential forum? Uh, It's just God's providence. But all of it's based on the same idea. Rick Warren's use of Wagner, Wimber, McGavern was, we're going to create a three-legged stool. Remember that? What were the three legs of the stool? Very much like what you found in your research. We're going to have business, 
government and church, and we're going to change society and solve all the problems by cooperating. And so he managed to get both Obama and McCain to come out to his church to have a forum and to participate on this idea of the three-legged stool. So in the midst of this huge thing, people all over the world that he had brought in in the middle of his peace plan, and I had written a book about it, here's Chris Roseboro, who was a Lutheran, and me, the only two that ended up being the critics that we were ushered into this room and then surrounded by his handlers, all of which, can we tape it, can we tape it, can we tape it? So here's all these tape recorders. And so Rick Warren is a schmoozer, hey, you know, what are you guys, and great to have, blah, 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 blah. And, but we couldn't be dissuaded. I talked to um, okay. Steve about this before we started. There was one thing Chris Roseboro was going to say, and there was one thing I wanted to do. And Chris Roseboro had been there all four days, hundreds of hours in a sense of our, that went behind the study and then all these presentations. And Chris said, I've been here for four days. I've heard everything from all you people all over the world, and I've heard everything you said, Pastor Warren, but here's what I want to know. I've heard not one word about forgiveness of sins. What do you have for that? Nothing. Blank. And I said, uh, they wanted to call him Pastor Rick. Pastor Rick. And then he'd ask us about us and try to be disarming and whatever. But I said, I'm only here for one reason. I want to plead with you to preach Christ. Because in his footnotes, if you go far enough, he, he says he believes what we do. So I said, you need to preach Christ. People need to know who Christ is. But let, if you don't mind, I want to do that right now. So we know we're talking about the same thing. And I preached Christ. Here's all these leaders from all over the world. They're taping away, trying to catch us in something. And I talked about Christ, that Jesus Christ is the creator God who created the universe out of nothing. John 1, 1 through 18. Jesus Christ came into the world. He's not just a world leader. He was virgin born. He's everything the Bible said. I talked about the blood atonement. Jesus predicted his own resurrection from the dead and was raised from the dead. No one else ever did that. He spoke for God. He's coming again. The world's headed for judgment. We do need forgiveness of sins. And Paul said that he would rejoice if Christ was preached. Preach Christ. People are lost sinners. Here they all are. And, okay, they were polite, but he never said he would do it. None of those tapes ever got published. You know why? Because they were embarrassed to do it because the gospel would have gone out. But somebody I knew managed to get on his website to be able to hear sermons live. The next Sunday, that was like a Friday or Saturday. Here's what he said in his next sermon. I don't have to be a prosecuting attorney. In other words, we don't want to tell people that they're facing the wrath of God unless their sins are forgiven and the blood of Jesus washes away their sins. McGavern's idea is the heart and the root of all that Steve is rightly warning us about. People don't become Christians for theological reasons. Clever, that's what exactly what Warren was doing. In other words, he didn't say theology didn't matter. People don't care about it, so why even talk about it? But sociological get something they want to join. Okay, so again, I don't want to rain on your great lecture, but it's driving me nuts that I've I've been sitting here thinking about all this. And how could it be that all of this happened? And I honestly think, Stephen, you're absolutely right. If we don't preach Christ, what good is being churched? We've got a question back there. Uh, my dad was a, a minister, and uh, uh, we grew up critiquing ministers. And uh, after I, we'd get out of church, 
my dad would say, well, did you hear the gospel in that sermon? And uh, I still tend to have that habit, and I hear so much uh, preaching on the radio, everybody from John MacArthur to David Jeremiah to they could have the sermons on Adrian Rogers till the Christ returns, and Jay Vernon McGee, the same thing. And I guess that's one of the things that bothers me is that Jesus Christ is coming soon, and people need to be told that they need to share the gospel with the lost world out there. I, I mean, I have unsaved relatives. I've been praying for years. And uh, I even gave my niece a subscription to uh, Citizen Magazine. And I'm even thinking about sending her a copy of the Understanding the Times Prophecy uh, uh, newsletter. I just ordered about five of them, and I'm thinking about sending them to some of my relatives. Uh, I, I have, you know, a lot of Christians that are... I'm thankful for, but there's others that uh, don't know Christ. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> we had one other. Uh, don't you love his voice. <laughs> we had one other question back there. Uh, Dana, there's. Yeah, that was that was great. Uh, you know, I came out of a business background. There was a guy who was a mentor, a big mentor for these guys. Rick Warren was uh, Peter Drucker. Oh, yeah. And Peter Drucker was humongous in the area of business and, uh, and really business management. And he was the guy that really, uh, he, Bob Buford, all of those guys were huge in being able to, their focus was to build big churches. So they used the management style of Peter Drucker, and he became the mentor of a lot of those guys. Okay. In the time that remains, we'll just take a quick look at uh, missions. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, the World Christian Movement. Um, in, in, I think, the early 70s, the Lausanne Convention was held. It was in a city in Switzerland where they came up with the with Lausanne Covenant for how they were going to do missions. And a very large number, perhaps a, probably the majority of evangelical missions agencies subscribe to the Lausanne Covenant. And you know, maybe at some future time we'll get into that uh, further. Um, the, the U.S. Center for World Missions was established in California by Ralph Winter, who was, uh, I think, one of the key people in, this, in the modern missions movement. Um, they have produced a course that is called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement, or Perspectives for short. I have a copy of it. It's, uh, it's a compilation of different articles or papers by many different leaders in the, uh, in the evangelical world. There's oh, one by Peter, C. Peter Wagner, and there's several by Ralph Winter. There's at least one by John Piper in it. Um, a lot of other names you'd recognize. And I've looked at, on uh, McGavern, I've looked at a couple of them. Some of them are very good. They're good historic. They, pro they provide good historical information, historical background on missions. Uh, some of them are very, you know, all about the modern missions approach. Now, I'm going to be just read a, a little bit of, of an article I found on the web. It is from Mission Frontiers, which is the uh, publication of the, of the U.S. Center for World Missions. And nowadays, in recent times, the word transformation has come into vogue. And I, sometimes when I'm listening to KKMS or some other Christian, uh, some other radio, uh, some other reading a book or on the YouTube or something, I hear the word transformation. And right away, this makes me start to wonder about the, you know, what, they're really, what they're really into. Um, some people might be using it innocently. Other people might be using the word in, in the context that it's used by, by modern missions. I'm just going to read a few paragraphs in conclusion uh, from this um, uh, paper. It's, uh, the title of it is A Call for Servant Catalysts to Join God's Mission of Transformation. 
And we have to remember, as, we, as you listen to this, you have to know that this sort of this mentality is very is prevalent in the evangelical missions move outreach. And perhaps that's the predominant one. In response to the great challenge of our time, God is calling his servants to act as catalysts and mobilizing the whole body of Christ to bless the nations through the transformation of people, churches, and culture. That mission is being accomplished through a collaborative venture that engages the generations in transforming nations through all spheres of cultural influence. In his model prayer, Jesus prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Transform World 2020, and that's the name of their outreach, is a global collaborative initiative seeking to do his revealed will in our communities through the nation, throughout the nations as a unifying converging force. <clears throat> as Christ followers, we are pursuing the mission of God. God is on a mission of transformation and invites us to join him on that mission as his servant catalyst. As we look around our world, we recognize that a global transformation movement has begun. It's God's movement. We are servant catalysts on his mission of transformation. And then we have identified seven major challenges we must respond to. Number one is the ideological challenge of Islam. Okay, I can, probably, I can agree with that one. The second one is the family challenge, giving strength to the core of society. The third one, the orphan challenge, together for a world without orphans. The poverty challenge, giving the poorest of the poor a hand up to self-sustainability. Fifth one, the justice challenge, constructing societies that respect human dignity. Christ's missional challenge, accelerating breakthrough among the unreached, that might be a vague reference to evangelism. It just sounds good. Missional <laughs> Well, maybe not. It's a... Missional is emergent. Oh, okay. And the celebration challenge, a trumpet call to all the nations. I'm not sure what celebration... Well, I, I know what celebration is. I don't know why it's a challenge we must uh, respond to. But um, the one about... What, for example, the, the justice challenge to construct societies that respect human dignity, well, that, that's an impossible task. You know, even a, a large number of evangelical missionaries are not going to be able to do that in a thousand years. And so and their, their, their goals are way out of reach. Uh, just, uh, okay, the final paragraph that I'm going to read is, what does that, that transformed community and world look like? A transformed world is a place where the power, the presence, and the peace of God are experienced by all. The power of God is unleashed. The peace of God rules. The presence of God fills the earth. And then quoting Psalm 85, love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. Okay, that is their vision. You know what they what they expect. <laughs> yeah, I, this is I have stopped. This is the end of it. So, no, that's why I'm done. So I probably no. Good job. What that is, <clears throat> postmillennialism. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it is the Hegelian synthesis, and to make it real simple, summarizing the worldview that Steve is nicely sharing with us here. Uh, the biblical worldview, if you just boil it down, is that history is linear. Yeah. It's not cyclical. It begins with creation of the universe out of nothing. Then there's a fall. And then it ends with judgment. Now, there's a lot of details. Yeah that's revealed in the Bible, but we have a linear view of history. And when I debated emergent, they wouldn't agree to that. And after we went to the, Chris and I went to the three-legged stool conference, <laughs> we went to an emergent one, and they wouldn't agree to the idea of a linear history and a future judgment. They believe in Hegel. The German philosopher, late, like from 1790 to early 1700s. Late 1700s, yeah. Yeah, he believed that 
in, in spiritual and social evolution. Sort of closing prayer. Do you want to pray? Sure. Love you too, Steve. Oh, yeah, yeah, amen. Yeah, thank you so much, Steve. Thank you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for this message today, and we pray, Lord, that you'd use it to keep us focused on your task and your mission, uh, to be about your gospel and your word. You said, uh, Lord, that people would be sanctified by your truth. Your word is truth. We pray, Lord, that we'd be about proclaiming your word. We pray, Lord, that the church would return back from emergent. It would turn back from postmodern epistemology. It would turn back from church growth movements, Lord, and to proclaim your gospel to be about your business. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.